Welcome to Watershed Chats, presented by the Water People Podcast in collaboration with Patagonia. Watershed moments are traditionally understood as a division or distinction between two phases. They can be turning points that define our shared history. Here, we sit down with experts and those having a go at building and dreaming new ways into fruition for a healthy and habitable future on planet ocean. Dr. Wallace J. Nichols is a marine biologist and author. In 2014, he published Blue Mind, an interdisciplinary reimagining of the story of water and the vast cognitive, social, physical, and spiritual benefits of being in, around, and under healthy water systems. His integrative approach to research and activism, informed by decades of scientific inquiry, begs the question, how can we create a healthier world if we aren't well in our own minds and bodies? As we're recording amidst social distancing, we caught up with Dr. Wallace, or Jay as he goes by, over the net. So please excuse any dropouts or glitchy moments, and enjoy hearing from the founder of the Blue Mind Movement. I just wanted to open with a quote from Lyle Watson. I, I bet you're familiar with his work. Oh, um, from, sure. Absolutely. From the book, The Water Planet. And um, he wrote, water is a source of power in all its connotations. Flowing water took us out of the dark ages. Water made the first clocks and machines work. Flooding rivers produced the first civilizations. Water means commerce and trade between nations. Water has built and sustained empires, and the absence of water kills thousands every day. Water is quite literally everything that we are. Your work really seems to build on the work of creative biologists like Lyle Watson, who also dared to bridge the gap between what we call hard science and the more than physical interplay between humans and the living world. It's a space that has kind of historically opened up scientists to critique um, it's it's a bold place to go. How did you end up there? I, you know, thank you for that comparison. I I appreciate his work a lot and have admired it forever. Um, I started there. I guess that's I didn't really end up there. I started in that place where you're pulled by your heart. You know, I'm, I'm as a kid, I think if anybody's listening to this, they probably know the feeling of it. you just don't want to get out of the water. You want to get in the water when you wake up in the morning and then you just don't want to get out. And that's where I started. And uh, I became a marine biologist because of that. Um, I was not as comfortable on land. I was not comfortable speaking to people. I'd just rather be underwater where nobody asks you questions. And, uh, and so fast forward, I pursued a career as a marine biologist to be in the water as much as possible. And uh, started thinking about that initial pull. You know, what is it about the water that makes us feel whole? Or uh, what is it about water that feels like your best friend, um, feels like your home? And for me, I, I stuttered as a kid and I was adopted. So I, I kind of was a little uneasy about life on land. But in the water, it, it just all kind of came together. And so I, as a scientist, I wondered... What is that? What is that thing that I felt that's basically dictated my whole life? And I went looking for a book about that and I couldn't find one. <laughs> so, you know, I tried to get some other people to write it and I failed. And then sort of it just fell back to me again. And uh, the book that I wanted to read was the one that I ended up having to write in order to read it, which is kind of crazy. 
So it kind of does build on that quote, um, that Lyle Watson quote there that, um, you know, what are the cognitive, emotional, psychological, social, and spiritual health benefits of water? And why do we leave that out so often in our academic lives or in our sort of serious meetings, yet it drives our lives when we're, we take off that academic hat. It is among the most important things. Like, you know, I've got, I've got my guitar right here, right under the surfboards, and I see yours on the wall there. Music and, and water and a good dog, you know, just kind of make life worth living. Um, and as a parent, the greatest gifts you can give your, your kids or as a grandparent or as an aunt or an uncle or as a mentor, the greatest gifts you can give are a love of music and a love of water and, and a love of a good dog. I think that's, you know, maybe reducing it a little too far, but your child will be rich for life if you offer that. And so as a side, back to your question, I guess, as a scientist, I, I wonder why, why do we dial that out of how we're taught? I mean, I went to the 24th grade, which is, qualifies as overeducated. And we never learned about anything close to Blue Mind in any of my classes, not even for five minutes. It was just not in there. And that's a, that's a big miss. You know, that's a big omission. And I, I can't help think that it's somewhat purposeful. And I want to go down any conspiracy theory rabbit holes or anything, but it is so dialed out of our educational system and our policy and our nonprofit organizational approach to conservation. And it's so dialed out of how we educate people who visit aquariums that I can't help think that it's, it's maybe scares people, the power of nature and water. I'm curious, Jay, about the consequences of that being dialed out of so many areas of life. In your experience, what are some of the consequences of that? Have you experienced that personally? Even? Mm. You know, the proposal I wrote 10 years ago to work on Blue Mind was not met favorably. It was not funded. I was told it was career suicide, uh, that I was wasting my time and throwing my career away by taking this turn. Um, I disagreed, obviously, and carried on. I don't think the consequences to my career matter at all. Really, I think more importantly, the, uh, the consequence of leaving out, let's just call for shorthand, call them the blue mind benefits of healthy waters, is that we undervalue all of our waters. And when we get the value equation wrong, whether we're talking about fellow humans or water or anything, bad things happen. So if you undervalue your water, bad things happen. If you undervalue your neighbor or fellow human, bad things happen. So I think as a consequence of getting that equation wrong, we have mistreated our lakes and our rivers and our oceans and our waters, thereby mistreating ourselves as a result. The good news, it's not all bad news. The good news is we now know that we've gotten the equation wrong. We know what we've left out not really sure why we've left it out so thoroughly, but we can bring it back in. And that's kind of what this conversation really is about, is how do we bring in these truly valuable aspects of water back into the way we teach the water cycle to grade school kids and the way 
we approach our conservation work and the way we approach public health, physical and, and emotional health. And that's exciting. That's super exciting. And when you start bringing that back in, if you bring surf therapy and aquatic therapy and dive therapy and float therapy to your public health toolkit, it's transformative. So you came up with this theory of the blue mind, and it seems like you got to that point through a pathway of being a marine biologist, being a conservationist um, over many decades, and coming to the realization that the way we were approaching conservation work essentially wasn't working. Yeah, you know, I I noticed a lot of, there's just a lot of um, bad news, a lot of people talking about bad news, and then in us versus them. So identifying an enemy and then fighting that enemy. And and that's still the way things are done, largely. And it just didn't seem to be working. It didn't inspire me. Uh, it just made me sad. And, and I think some people get inspired by enemies and bad news, and certainly. I'm not one of those people. And so I was working on uh, some sea turtle projects and started working with the turtle hunters who were the so-called enemies of nature to figure out how to save the black sea turtle from going extinct. And um, I was told that was career suicide too, that there was no way, it's too late, no way you could work with turtle hunters. Uh, turns out it wasn't too late and it turns out you can work with people if you meet them where they live. And so from that success, working with uh, the men and women who were responsible for the, you know, the near extinction of the black sea turtle, working with them to protect them and now restore them. Now they've been downlisted and their population has grown tremendously. And we have more black sea turtles than we've ever seen in our lifetimes. I learned a few things from the people I worked with and that sort of evolved a bit into this blue mind approach. And I'm not so naive to think that there is no evil in the world. There is no, no wrongdoing and that everybody is, you know, going to flip a switch and become a, a turtle saver, their sociopathy and their psychopathy. And there are people doing bad things who can't control themselves, of course. But there's just something missing that the gratitude and the recognition that nature has all this value that isn't just protein and, you know, just not reducible to economics and not just reducible to ecological value. It's the emotional component. Yeah, I feel like what you're getting to is really at the heart of so many of our social and environmental issues. And that's how we have philosophically, practically, and otherwise removed ourselves as separate from the living world. And it feels like that's, you're just saying simply, but it's also very complex. We need to remember that we belong here too. Yeah, I think telling a, a better story about water and ourselves and where we come from. And, and by the way, I found that the blue mind ideas, the science is you can find it in every spiritual tradition on the planet. There's no fight between you know, blue mind science and spiritual religious traditions and sacred texts. It's in there. And you pick a, a tradition, you'll find a very clear reference to the physical and emotional benefits of water in the spiritual text. So 
that's cool too. I mean, I, I like finding those, those commonalities that kind of go, go big and go universal and not excluding anyone from the conversation. So, you know, the, the water story is, is universal uh, across all cultures and traditions and, and sacred texts. And then you bring the, the science to it and it just gets better. And uh, so, I, you know, I like to think about the new improved water cycle. You know, in grade school, we all learn the water cycle, but it leaves out the human emotional connection to water. That's not something you learn when you learn the water cycle. You learn that we drink water and that we, we do hydration and hygiene, but you don't learn that water is also a source for peace and a sense of freedom, romance, uh, creativity, calmness, curiosity, connectedness. You don't learn that, and it is. And wouldn't that be cool if you learned the water cycle in grade school and part of that was blue mind like that would just be awesome you know that that would have helped me a lot as a kid if somebody in my school as the teacher had said hey you seem a little introverted and a little extra sensitive water can help you a lot I try to say that when I meet kids who um, I recognize are are dealing with different kinds of sensitivities to their environment when I can, I pull them aside with their parents and say, you know, uh, that's kind of how I was. And being in the water helped me out a lot. And, um, and sometimes they know that. Sometimes the kid's like, yeah, I love water. And the parents are like, oh, of course, we spend as much time in the water as possible. And sometimes it's, it's a gift. Uh, yeah. And we're, we all get overwhelmed, you know. I mean, especially right now uh, on our planet, a lot of people have more red mind and are, you know, dipping their toes in the gray mind mode a bit more than usual. And can you talk us through those mind states that um that have yeah. tend, that are tending to predominate in our culture? <laughs> yeah. So you know, really, the best way to understand blue mind is to talk about red mind. Ironically, but so red mind is kind of our new normal. It is uh, our hyperconnected, mildly or sometimes severely anxious or stressed go mode we're overstimulated overcommitted you know it's not all bad it's it's how we get things done it's kind of our fight or flight response uh in sort of hyper overdrive whether it's technology and screens or just lots and lots of information and when we're feeling a little overwhelmed we just double down on caffeine and red bull or whatever it is and go harder and that's encouraged um sleeplessness exhaustion. And if you stay in red mind too long, uh, you will end up in gray mind, which is burnout and breakdown and depression even. And that's no good. So red mind is really useful if you toggle between red and blue. Gray mind is pretty useless. So if you're toggling between red and gray, uh, it's probably time for an intervention of some sort. Um, that's not a good way to live. You you'll break down and burn out. So Blue Mind kind of comes in and helps us hit the reset button, sort of disconnect, but reconnect to the things that are important to us, restore our minds, our creativity, our relationships, restore our bodies, take a break, you know, unplug, um, jump in the water. <laughs> mm. uh, so, you know, Red Mind is, 
Yeah, it is useful. It's it, the reason why we have a red mind state is because it's kept us alive. Uh, gray mind is not adaptive, but red mind is. Maybe gray mind is too. If, I mean, burnout is a response to is a, you know being overloaded too long, and and gray you know gray mind is kind of the ashes of too much fire, um, the aftermath. And uh, sometimes you need to kind of douse the fire with some water. <laughs> That's blue mind. And uh, so that you don't burn out. So you don't burn down the house. And um, so, you know, the, that's an oversimplification of some pretty complex uh, neurobiology and psychology. And, uh, and I, I want to make sure that's clear that, you know, blue, red and gray are kind of a cartoon version of our complex emotional lives. But um, that, simplification i think helps people talk about it and think about it and maybe get a get a handle on it and in different groups that i've worked with just walking through blue red and gray mind states has helped um particularly men and i don't want to stereotype um but i just did uh the uh guys tend to have a harder time talking about their emotions and in, in particular cultures around the world i work in mexico a lot and there's a machismo culture that um, it's harder to talk about how you're feeling. Uh, so if you can color code it and make it not about depression or anxiety, but red and blue and gray, then it may be a little easier to talk about and get a handle on. And then if we talk about it, then we can address it. If we can address mm -hmm. it, hopefully we can avoid some of the negative consequences. So that's why I like that sort of symbolic conversation about our emotions yeah well it's visual it's visual and it's um easy to understand and I just wanted to interject <laughs> and say you know maybe there was a little bit of stereotyping but it's not because of any deficiency in men in in your capacity to feel just as deeply um it's just a product of our culture not encouraging these kinds of conversations amongst boys to encourage boys to feel and to cry and express emotion in a way that is socially acceptable for girls and, and this water pathway is another way to stimulate those conversations around feeling. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that the feminine is more associated with water and um, the ocean and just sort of in an archetypal way. Um, and, you know, we work with a lot of veterans and, and first responders and whether they're men or women, they're told to suck it up. You know, if you're feeling burnt out, if you're feeling post-traumatic stress or anxiety you're just told to bury it deeper and and fight on and sometimes that works and for some people who are particularly resilient it works for a while uh until it doesn't work mm. and if we're undervaluing each other then we can burn through so-called human resources and just find the next person to step in to fight whether it's to make money or to win a war and the human individual becomes dispensable and kind of goes back to that undervaluing. So if we undervalue each other and we undervalue our waters, then we, we can just crank in red mind mode and um, just kind of, you know, plow through people. But that's not very humane, of course. Or sustainable. Uh, nor is it sustainable. Or, or sustainable. Yeah. 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 Just generally super uncool. Let's just put it that way. So, so you're pretty much speaking to your people here. Um, anyone who's listening to this podcast um, intuitively and experientially understands the transformative power of water. 
Um, why do we need to quantify the impact of water? What, what difference will it make? Well, you know, for some reason, a lot of these ideas have been massively discounted in our society. And I think in order to bring them back in to where they belong, we need all, all the tools we can get our hands on. And we need poetry and we need art and we need film and we need podcasts and we need science. Uh, we need murals and we need people who speak well, people who sing well to tell this better water story. And the science is helpful, you know, and I, I like having it in my pocket when I represent water in, uh, in, in any setting, whether it's a keynote at a conference or a, a meeting or um, a talk with kindergartners. Uh, so I think that as the knowledge island, you know, the island of knowledge grows, the beach gets longer. That's kind of the way I, I think about science. So the more we know about how we work, what's going on in our nervous systems, in our bodies, and what's going on in the ocean, the better stewards we can be of both ourselves, our human health, and uh, environmental health. So neuroscience and neuropsychology are happening. You know, it's, this is the era, the golden age of, of, of the brain, of the nervous system. And who should have that knowledge is kind of a, a good question. Should it be privatized and given to corporations to do neuromarketing or politicians? Or should it be shared? Should we have neuroliteracy so that you understand your own brain? so that you can be empowered to sort of optimize it? Or do you want to give that knowledge up to somebody else to own and possibly use uh, to manipulate? Not saying pointing fingers or anything, but um, so that's kind of, you know, eco-literacy and neuro-literacy go hand in hand mm. uh, as part of democracy, I think. So that's the other piece of it is um, I want to know how my brain works just as an individual. When I talk to young people who should understand your brain, the answer should be you who should understand the science of your emotions. Hopefully you uh, who should own your nostalgia. You, uh, you should understand what nostalgia is and how to make it. And you should understand how to motivate yourself and, the neurochemistry of that. And, and we're seeing that, you know, with, with athletes and creative people, the language of neuroscience is, is creeping in to the, the realm of performance, uh, whether it's, you know, in the water, on the field, on the stage. And so that's really neat, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes beyond elite athletes and, you know, elite performers and goes to all of us. And you want to be a good parent, knowing a little bit about your neurochemistry and your child's neurochemistry is useful. Uh, it helps us navigate you know, the ups and downs of life. It helps us navigate our emotional swings. And so that's kind of, <laughs> kind of why, why science, uh, because it's, it's empowering uh, to understand ourselves and, and then to share that uh, as a, as a tool or as a force for good. 
Yeah, just sort of linking back to what you were saying before about the commonality of water in all of the spiritual traditions that you've encountered thus far. I feel like science is coming to, a, you know, increasingly coming to a similar place in terms of connectivity and the interconnection of us with water and, and all life on our planet. And in your book, you state that aquatic biodiversity has been directly correlated with therapeutic potency of blue space. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that? How, I mean, it sounds like you're saying life is conducive to life. Well-being is conducive to mm -hmm. well-being. Yeah. So, you know, just take a, take an example. If you're, if you're surfing uh, in a, a biodiverse, productive, healthy ocean, uh, you may, if you're around where I am, you may encounter otters or seals, uh, perhaps a whale, even dolphins, uh, big cannonball jellies and kelp. That whole experience is just so much more rich and, you know, contrast that maybe to a wave park, which is, you know, water and waves and some good people, which is a, a very different experience. So you, you add in the diversity of life from the microscopic to the wildly macroscopic, and it's, a, it's just a wildly different experience. And some of the, the research that we've done, so when you, you, know, you think about Blue Mind, you could say, okay, well, so I should just sit in a room painted blue with some white noise some static, and that'll help. Um, now, that will actually drive you absolutely crazy. It's more than, than just the color and the sound. It's, mm. it's the, the diversity of, of colors and sounds, and it's the structure of that, that noise, of the sound of the water. It's the blue noise, um, and it's the rippling of the water, and it's the, the waves and wavelets and it's the way they bang around on the cobble and the grains of sand. And then you start layering in the microscopic and the larger macroscopic forms of life. And that's where it gets really interesting. And so the, the research that we've done has sort of proven that. Um, not surprisingly, standing in front of some water is, is relaxing, but it gets, uh, it gets boring pretty quickly. But as you add in biodiversity, you enjoy it longer and you lean into the relaxing qualities and the restorative qualities for longer periods of time. It becomes more, the meditative aspect of it extends. And so, you know, that it, it's not all an argument just for human utility of biodiversity, uh, although that's part of it. You know, I think there's an intrinsic value, you know, to, to life, to diversity. But while we're making arguments for conservation, we may as well in include uh, the emotional wellness components. And, um, you know, the research is, is clear. I mean, there's a, a decade of research that's piled up, you know, on blue health and blue space and blue mind that all, you know, basically says the same thing over and over again. Every study, every clinical study that's done just bold and underlines the basic thesis of Blue Mind. So I, I love the research. I think we'll continue to do lots more research, mm -hmm. but I'm not waiting around for it any longer. <laughs> <laughs> so we've just started up this new podcast series, Watershed Chats, and we're, we want to address some of the broken aspects of our lives or our systems and 
and really chat with people who are finding steps toward repair. Is is it your feeling that we're in the midst of a watershed moment or a tipping point in the mm -hmm. realm of marine conservation? I hope so. <laughs> I think there's a, a lot more attention on the ocean now than there was 10 and especially 20 years ago. When I started my career 30 years ago as a marine biologist and ocean conservationist, there was a little bit of like, why in the world aren't people paying more attention to the ocean sentiment? And that was kind of our, you know, our mantra was the ocean is 71% of the planet. Why does it get less than one fraction of 1% of the conservation funding? And I think that's changing. And there's a lot more awareness now. But I don't think that alone is enough. I think, I think when we link our physical and emotional health to the health of lakes, rivers, and oceans. And, I, and I, I'd rather talk about water than oceans because I, mm. I think separating lakes, rivers, and oceans doesn't make any sense. Um, mm. Although it's, it's often done. Ocean meetings don't overlap with river meetings very often. So I'll, I'll talk about water. But I think when we connect the health of water to the health of our minds and our bodies, um, the health of those who serve us most. So our first responders, our veterans, people on the front lines who stand between us and danger for a living, we'll build a bigger, a much bigger blue movement. That's what's exciting to me right now is when we, when we connect in the health and wellness component to the conservation and restoration work. And it kind of takes it out of this stuck political place, the left, right, different kind of blue and red political perspective. It makes it more ecumenical and more inclusive, I think, mm. when you say, you know, waves are some of the best medicine for our, our veterans and rivers are some of the best medicine for our health practitioners and lakes are some of the best medicine for our first responders that just kind of explodes the rhetoric in a good way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it will build a, a stronger, less partisan, more ecumenical blue movement, which is kind of the way I like to roll in general. Mm. <laughs> but that's the hard, that's the hard work, isn't it? You're saying if we, <laughs> if we want our world to be well, we, we need to start with wellness in our own bodies and in our families. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really important point the, that emotional, our emotional health is the basis of sustainability. Uh, let that one sink in a little, but <laughs> that, that idea that, you know, in our organizations, in our families, um, on our teams, in our businesses, you know, our, our interpersonal, uh, emotional health really is the basis of sustainability. And um, it's just a, a, an important perspective. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about Adelita? She, oh, sure. <laughs> she, she struck me as an important being in your journey to where your work has gone. Maybe that's not true. I thought you would never ask. <laughs> she, uh, so Adelita is, um, yeah, I'm very fond of her and spent, uh, Spent a lot of time, I would say, connected, tethered to her. Uh, <laughs> she is a, a loggerhead sea turtle that 
was raised in captivity in Baja California, Mexico, where I did my doctoral work. And we were fortunate to get a satellite transmitter and that we attached to her shell and we were able to release her from her, her tank, at which time she began a long journey home from Mexico to her natal beaches of Japan, which took her, it took 368 days for her to swim the 12,000 kilometers from uh, Santa Rosalita, Baja California, Mexico, to a small town called Isohama on the coast of Japan. And uh, it was the first time an animal had been tracked um, swimming across an entire ocean of any kind. So that was pretty exciting. I mean, that's paradigm shifting, really, isn't it? That research? It, it was. And it, we didn't, I guess we didn't really know it at the time. It was, it was somewhat surprising. Uh, it was paradigm shift. Literally, oceanographic textbooks needed to be rewritten um, based on not just that one track, but the, the whole idea that animals swim across entire oceans it was not a notion that was included in. And those deep ocean spaces were sort of thought of as lifeless zones, right? But but here yeah, you they're are, barriers. turtle who's taking her life across uh, all of that space. Yeah, and in fact, you know, the first response to Adelita's journey back home was, what's wrong with that turtle? Like, what, this can't be normal. Uh, it was um, unusual. It turns out it's not unusual at all. Lots of animals cross oceans. We just happened to track the first one. Uh, and the other, other component of it that was slightly revolutionary was that we shared the data online in real time, which was ill-advised by everyone. Uh, was told that was career suicide to share data before it had gone through peer review. Mm. And uh, the internet was young. Um, there was no such thing as Facebook. I think you know Napster was a crime. Sharing your music was a crime. <laughs> so sharing your data in real time was just a, really not a good idea. But we did it anyway, and it, it built this following and, you know, I dare say a movement around this turtle. And uh, now people share their tracking data all the time, and it's really fun. Back then, it was, it was edgy. <laughs> mm. and, but we met, we met other scientists who said, wow, I'm, I can do this with the data. And we were like, wow, that's super cool. You know, let's collaborate. And we met teachers and students and uh, you know, it was just kind of the early days of, you know, we kind of forget, you know, it's, it's, um, take the internet for granted and all the connectivity that we have. But back then it was the early days of that promise that, Hey, the internet will connect you to colleagues who care about turtles on the other side of the planet. We're like, huh, how does that work? Hmm. Well, that's how it works. You, you share your data and then you find each other and then you, you build things together. You get to be turtle you nerds meet. together. <laughs> totally, totally. Like up all night geeking out on turtles. It's like, uh, literally. And so, you know, I'm not kidding. We were. And, uh, and then with the kids, sharing the data with kids who would, you know, like clever math teachers would use the data to teach their kids algebra. Mm-hmm. And the kids didn't even know they were learning algebra. So that was really fun. I wanted to add that there was one more component to that research that was 
pretty revelatory, at least for me. And that was that Adelita had been raised in captivity. Is that right? That's right. She had been rescued from a net 10 years in a tank. And mostly in isolation? Yeah, there were other turtles in there, but the t- it was a pretty small tank. And um, she was well fed. Uh, the tank water was changed daily. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it as horrific conditions, although they were uh, for a uh, highly migratory animal. It, it was a pretty small tank. But the amazing thing is she remembered. She, she remembered where she needed to go. This incredible journey across an entire ocean. She had that understanding of where she needed to know, even after having been lost or sidetracked for a full decade. It just It just... That's so beautiful, and it reminds me that there's so much that we don't know and we don't understand. Yeah, really, truly, um, it's astounding that she she held that uh, you know let's just call it a kind of wisdom and mm-hmm. inability to navigate the most vast wilderness, as you alluded earlier, just formerly considered kind of a, an oceanic desert. I feel like it's so difficult to overestimate the impact of water on our lives, even if we don't live near the sea or identify as water people. But um, we really didn't come to identify water as a as a substance until the 18th century, and since then we've kind of continued to take water for granted and and to be confounded by the way it breaks, you know, otherwise what we consider natural laws in terms of its physics and chemistry, the way water can behave as an acid or a base or water's indestructibility. Essentially the same amount of water has cycled through our planet for billions of years, moving from solid to liquid to gas. It's a miraculous substance that I feel like it's easy to, you know, roll your eyes and think, oh, water makes us feel good, you know, duh. Um, But there's so much intricacy um, and and magic in this substance that we don't even close to fully understand yet. What's been the most perplexing discovery you've made in your research about the nature of water? Wow, that's a good question. The, the, um, I'd say that, you know, the most perplexing thing has been why that eloquent statement you just made is not common knowledge any longer, and maybe it once was, but that's kind of the the most perplexing piece of this is why it's so hard to take this reverence and make it common knowledge again. It's a frustrating, perplexing conundrum, and that's, Mm. I think, why I enjoy speaking to you and, and having this conversation, because I think it helps sharpen all of us in our our language and our storytelling so that we can go out and, and, and build on this set of ideas mm-hmm. you know, as, as water people uh, take what we know and what we experienced and what we learn and do a better job uh, breaking through whatever those barriers are and build a society around that reverence for water because it used to be that way. Mm. And many cultures all over the world recognize the things we're talking about and taught them as matter of course. Um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of <laughs> that's where my 
I, I don't get baffled so much by water itself. I get more baffled by the human water connection or sometimes lack thereof. Mm. Yeah, that's what Dave and I both love so much about your work is that it's about remembering like so much great wisdom. Um, the, the more we delve into our own specific experiential lives, the closer we get to touching the universal. Mm-hmm. And with your work, that universal is the just the remembering that we have this deep connection to water and and access to just the the most healing, uh, profound, humbling. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's you know, it's insulting to call it a tool, but yeah, um, for the sake of science, we can call it a tool. <laughs> and um, and if we can all remember that, that can inspire and um, serve as a launch pad for reforming our behaviors and attitudes and the way we've tended to to treat water as a resource instead of um, our lifeblood. Yeah, and I think, and yeah, it's a, it's a yes and, right? It's, it's, a, it's a resource, but not only a resource. It's a tool, but it's not only mm-hmm. a tool. You know, it's a, it's a sacred place, but it's also hydration and hygiene. And it's all of those things. That's kind of, you know, really broadening out our conversation and our understanding. And, and you know, the, the story we tell about our life here on this watery planet, we can do better and we are. I'm incredibly optimistic because of this conversation and conversations like it that are happening. These insights, I think, are they're science-based, they're useful, but they're also ancient. They're based in that ancient tradition and wisdom, which is so powerful. Mm, It gives me hope and optimism and that we understand the what I call the seven ages of water and how water plays a role in in birth and then in the playful years of our lives that hopefully continue all the way through and then through the middle years of being a lover and a fighter and the justice and then later in life therapeutically as our bodies ebb and flow and then at the end in death water plays a role and in memorialization and in grieving just understanding that our relationship with water from those first 9.2 months underwater that we spent to the very end when we go back into it you know in some other forum this episode of watershed chats is presented by patagonia whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to protect our home planet Thanks to our sound engineer, Shannon Soul Carroll, and artist-in-residence, Chris Miyashiro. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my partner in rhyme, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. Learn more at waterpeoplepodcast.com. <laughs>